before we start, if we can go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for this time, for this time of digging into your word, seeing, learning what you would have us learn. Father, I pray that as, as I speak, I pray that the words that I speak would be the words that you would have me to speak, that you would give me the knowledge of what to say. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was preparing for this week, um, this is not what I was initially planning on preaching on. If you're, you know, we're going into the Christmas season, I want let's a, ser- a happy Christmas sermon. You know, Christ has come to save us. And as I'm reading through and seeing, you know, what where I'm going to preach from, nothing was particularly jumping out. And then. The, about a week and a half ago, as I was reading through, I came across Ephesians 5, this section. Um, and to say that it hit like a bolt of lightning would probably be an understatement. It's this. This is what you're going to be preaching from today. And the Lord and I had an argument over this. Surely, surely not this. I'm wholly inadequate to teach on putting Christ in our marriage. I fail so frequently at it. Um, so, it, as I preach through this today, I preach it as much to my own teaching and my own shame, because for I, I so very often fall short at this. But why should we be concerned with putting Christ in our marriage? You know, isn't marriage is ordained from by God from the beginning? Surely, you know. A marriage between a man and a woman, yeah, that's, that's what's necessary. And so many passages, so many passages in Scripture speak about marriage in one context or another. There's actually, by, by my count, and I stopped counting at a hundred, there's over a hundred passages of Scripture that speak about marriage in one context or another. It's one of the most frequently mentioned, one of the most frequently mentioned things in all of Scripture, marriage. It's mentioned at the very beginning of things in Genesis 2, where God creates the woman to be a helpmate and a companion for the husband. And it's mentioned at the very end of things in Revelation 19, when, we, when the church is brought up into glory to the marriage feast of the Lamb. Surely this is a very important thing. Why should we put Christ in our marriage? The church's relationship with Christ is most frequently likened to that of a bride waiting for his bridegroom. It is the most important relationship that we have. Our relationship with Christ is compared to a marriage. Now, in, the, in this passage in Scripture, Paul is talking about, is speaking to believing spouses. And we'll dig more into that. There are other places where he's speaking to those who are married with unbelievers. And Paul's not really talking about that here. So why should we be concerned with putting Christ in our marriage? Well, let's consider the original state of things. 
Paul's case that he makes in Ephesians 5 is very heavily rooted in God's original design for marriage. So to properly understand the importance of putting Christ in our marriage, we must have a proper understanding of how things were designed to be. At the beginning, we're told marriage is between a man and a woman. In Genesis 1.27, he says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Marriage is, companion, is companionship and help. In the very next chapter in Genesis, God's, God says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper for him. That word that's translated as helper also has a sense of being a comfort. So both a help and a comfort. As the man has been given a task by God to, de- for, to subdue the world and to be a steward of God's creation. So the woman was created to help man and to be a comfort for man in that role. We learn that marriage is also exclusive and unifying. God, scripture also says, then the man said, after God had created woman, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It is exclusive and unifying. The original design was that the man and woman would become as one flesh since woman was created by God from man. Created to be a helpmate to the man as the man exercised dominion and stewardship. It was created for companionship, help, procreation, and unity. It sounds pretty important to me. But we also have to consider that the state of things as it was created to be was not, did not long remain the state of things. Because we have to consider the very next chapter, the fall. And that both man and woman were complicit in the fall. God gives his command to man saying, You may eat of every tree, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. And yet, we see, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. It is an inescapable reality of the text that while the text says that the woman was deceived, the man's disobedience was knowing defiance, since God had spoken directly to the man. In the fall, the man failed in his role to guard and keep. And we have to consider the consequences of the fall on marriage. We're told that in in general in Romans, therefore, sin and death, just as sin sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. So while sin and death entered the world through Adam's sin, sin, their sin had particular consequences on the marital relationship. 
consider God's words to Eve. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall, be, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. We learn a few things here from that text. One, we learn increased pain in childbearing. But we also learn that strife will become the norm in the marital relationship because of sin. For one, the woman who was created to be a helpmate and a companionship to her husband now will have the desire to oppose and assert leadership over the husband as opposed to being a helper. But we also learn something about the man in this, in this statement as well, that the man who was given, had a God-given role of leading and guarding and caring will abandon that role and will seek to assert his rule and dominion. The word for rule, it speaks of as a king or a dictator, rather than treating with love and valuing her, the tendency of the man will be to treat with contempt and subjugate. Because of the fall, strife was introduced into the marital relationship. God designed marriage to be harmonious, but we learn that sin turned it acrimonious. God designed it to be cooperative, but sin has turned it oppositional. God designed marriage to be productive, but sin turned it futile, as we, as we will see in God's God's curse toward the man. Man's work will be in futility. Even, even creation that the man was called to have dominion over will rebel. God designed it to be ordered. But sin has turned it into rebellion. Despite this being what sin has turned marriage into, surely this can't be what it was supposed to look like from the beginning, and certainly not what it should look like for the Christian. In fact, it isn't. We're called to be different. Peter in 1 Peter 2, 9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession." that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Some translations translate that a people for his own, uh, his own possession as a peculiar people, a people who are different, who are set apart, who aren't like everybody else. The effect of Christ, the effect of his salvation should result and us looking different. So if our marriages are to look different, how should they look? Let's dig into our text here. Well, the text that we'll be in today is Ephesians 5, 22 through 33. Paul here is, has finished um, talking about the relationship among those in the body 
And in this section and moving forward, he's, he talks about, and he'll focus on really the three basic relationships in the household of the day. Was, we're not going to focus on all three different relationships. We're going to focus mainly on the relationship between a husband and a wife. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. As Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, many times when Paul writes a letter, He's addressing a particular problem that's cropped up in that particular church. However, reading through the text of Ephesians, we don't see a particular problem that Paul is addressing. Um, Paul seems to have written this letter with the intent of telling the, the Ephesians how he's faring in confinement. Paul is imprisoned, one of his many imprisonments at the time of writing this letter. And he references his imprisonment several times throughout this, referring to himself as a prisoner for God, um, talking about his confinement. He begins his letter by commending the Ephesians because as he, in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 15, he says, Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul is writing a faithful church. And Paul begins this letter, and, and really to, to fully understand what Paul's talking about, we have to have an understanding of the letter and the context of the letter in which he's writing. Paul starts out his letter with, of an exposition of grace through faith. He's edifying the church at Ephesus, reminding them, he begins talking about how they, they were dead in their trespasses, characterized by disobedience, passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, darkened in understanding, the fu their futility of mind. They were ignorant, callous, children of wrath. And he says, like the rest of mankind. But we've been made alive in him. And this, the great statement of faith, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and not, this is not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of works so that no one may boast. And he goes on, that because we were made alive, we are his workmanship, created for good works. 
We were saved for a purpose. We were saved to carry out that purpose. And because we all share in the great grace and mercy of our Lord, we are all one in Christ. His grace is greater than the sin that sets us at odds. His grace that unites us is greater than the sin that sets us at odds. Because we are all united in Christ, we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens. Because we are citizens in the same body, this should result in us treating each other as part of the same body. We're all on the same team, as it were. We're no longer at odds, characterized by strife and conflict, but we share a unity in Christ that puts to rest all of our differences. In the body of Christ, there is no place for conflict. He talks about the the mystery of the gospel is that the grace that we've experienced is for all the world, Jews and Gentiles alike. If we believe, we are all part of the same body and we are all heirs with Christ. And the riches and grace of God are unsurpassingly great because it's for all saints until the end of time, for this generation and for the next. And because this mystery of the gospel and its unsurpassing greatness, we're to, we're to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. The characteristics of this walk are humility, gentleness, patience, long-suffering, unity of the Spirit, and peace. We have the same hope, the same Lord, the same faith, the same baptism, the same God and Father. But we've each been gifted differently. As different parts of the same body, we have different functions, but all are critical to the function of the body. So how are we to use these gifts? We're to use these gifts for equipping of the saints and the building up of the body. We are to live as ones worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Speaking truth, not sinning in anger, but reconciling with our brother. Paul in this section talks about Don't let the sun go down on your anger. We're to be pure in speech without unwholesome talk. We're to put away bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, malice, and slander. We're to show kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. As children of God, we're to imitate our Father. We're to walk in wisdom. What does this look like? What does walking in wisdom look like? Well, Paul tells us. We're to be filled with the Spirit. I mean, putting away the sins of our flesh. As he he says in 5-7, do not become partners with them. We're to speak in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to one another. That is, we're to edify each other. We are part of the same body. We're to use the gifts that we've been given to edify and to build up. We're to sing and make melody to the Lord. We're to praise our God and Savior. We're to give thanks at all times for all things to the Lord. Because they're all His anyway. He gave us these things. We're merely stewards. And he ends, that, he ends in 521 in the lead-in to this section. Submitting to one another. 
if we're members of the same body, we're to look out for one another. Because in looking out for one another, we're also looking out for ourselves, for we're all in the same body. But we're to do this in humility, subordinating our pride to the well-being of the body. Using the gifts that we've been given. And we have multiple examples of this throughout Scripture. Few, a few of the main ones. We have Christ's example of washing the disciples' feet. And he gets to Peter and Peter says, you know, no, Lord, don't, don't wash my feet. You can't do this. And Jesus says to Peter, well, if, unless I do this, you, you, can't, you won't have any part of me. And so Peter's response, by all means, and wash all of me. Not just my feet, but everything. In humility, Christ took on the role of a servant. And ultimately, his atoning sacrifice on the cross. We see in the garden, Christ asks the Father, if if this cup can pass from me, please, but not my will, but yours be done. We see the ultimate submission in Christ's death on the cross. And Paul reminds us in one of his other, in another letter that he writes to the Philippians where he talks about, do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is what submission looks like in the body, in the body of Christ. So then we get to this section on marriage. So Paul has talked all of, about all of this, but then he narrows in on a section starting in 522 through, chapter, through 6-9 where he's talking about specific relationships, specific household relationships. And it's, it begins almost as a, while I'm talking about submission... This is what this looks like in these, household, in these relationships within the household. In the run-up, Paul is describing the process and the effects of sanctification. The process of our sanctification is essentially an undoing of the effects of the fall. It's a process of being refashioned and remade into the image of God as it was supposed to be from the start. But this sanctification can only happen when we're united to Christ in his death. And this sanctification should have very practical effects on our behavior toward each other. So speaking of submission, how do we put on Christ in our marriage? Paul talks about how we should live out this sanctification in the three primary household relationships that were the foundation of society in the day. He starts off with the husband-wife relationship, then he moves into the parent and child relationship, and then he moves into the master and bond-servant relationship. And as a note, while he speaks to wives, children, and servants, he also is speaking to husbands, fathers, and masters in the household that would have been the same person. 
he has a whole lot to say to men. He has a whole lot to say about how men conduct themselves within the household. In fact, by my count, three quarters of this section is spent on the conduct of men. He gives, Paul gives very different commands to husbands and wives. But the end is the same. The process of sanctification should result in a restoration of the marriage relationship as God designed it to be. He begins by saying, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. It is the responsibility of wives to submit to their own husbands. This isn't a command of all women to submit to all men. And this reality is reiterated by Peter in 1 Peter, where he says, wives, submit to your own husbands. That word submission indicates that it is a willing submission. This is not a command of husbands to subjugate their wives. If a wife doesn't submit to their husband, it is not the husband's job to force his wife to submit. It is not a command to subjugate. The, the grammar of it is that it is a willing and joyful submission Note that this is in contrast to the curse of sin that God pronounces in Genesis 3.16 where God says, your desire will be contrary to your husband. Rather, the process of submission is an undoing of that and a restoration of that companionship and that helpmate that God designed it to be. So why? He roots it in that the husband is the head of the wife in the created order. He hearkens back to creation. Head in this context means holding a place of preeminence. It is not, it does not mean more worthy of grace or more worthy of forgiveness, or more worthy of love. It does mean a preeminence in the created order. He reasons by analogy that since Christ, that Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself the savior of the church. And while Paul acknowledges that it is an imperfect analogy, since the husband is, is certainly not savior, There is a temptation to say that, well, since Christ is the head of the church and a savior, and I'm united to that body, then I only have to submit to Christ. I don't have to submit to anybody else. And Paul addresses that in 24, where he says, Now as the church submits to Christ, so wives should also submit in everything to their husbands. There is a distinction between Christ's headship versus the husband's headship that can best be understood as that Christ is indeed the savior of the body and the husband is not. Nevertheless, the question of obedience or or submission is not affected. For all that, as the church is subject to Christ, so too are wives to be subject to their husbands. 
And this is really all Paul has to say to, all has to, say to wives. He has a whole lot more to say to husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Paul addresses the husband to love his wife. And, not, and it's not a love of, I feel warm, loving feelings to you. It is a love of action. And it is ultimately a love of sacrifice. As Christ laid down his life for the church, that's the model of love that the husband is to follow toward his wife. As a result of the fall, the husband's inclination is to dominate and to rule. This is not how he was created to be. But it is the curse of the fall that can only be undone in Christ. It is that love is to be modeled after Christ's love for his church. In verse 25, we're told that that love is a sacrificial love. It is a love that was willing to lay down his life. It is a sanctifying love. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her. As Christ sanctified and purified his church, the love of a husband toward his wife is to desire that for his wife. And ultimately, the love of Christ for his church was a glorifying love. So that the church might be, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she, the church, might be holy and without blemish. As we've been united to Christ in his sacrifice and transformed into his likeness through sanctification and purification, so husbands and wives are united through a Christ-like love. This has its foundation in the created order and its realization in Christ. Paul then appeals again to, the cre- to creation that husbands are to treat their wives. As husbands treat their wives, they treat their own body since the woman was created from the man and they are both united to the body of Christ in his sacrifice. He says in 29, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Since we're united to the body, if we don't show love to our wife, We're not showing love to the body. And we can't say that we can't say that we love ourselves and hate our body. We're reminded again in the story of creation that wives are a gift from God to the husband. 
They, and they are a gift of God from, they are a gift from God to the husband from the husband's own body. She's a gift, a God-given helpmate, and should be treated as valuable and cherished and esteemed. We often hear of the Proverbs 31 wife. We can't forget there's also the Ephesians 5 husband. And this section closes out. There's a reiteration of the commands. Husbands, love your wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. There's an interesting connect that these two things are related. But we should note that a husband's love and a wife's submission are not conditional upon each other. A husband is called to love his wife even if his wife won't, even if his wife does not submit to him. And a wife is to submit to her husband even if her husband does not love her as Christ loves the church. That's not to say that it will be a completely peaceful marriage. Because as Paul is speaking, Paul is speaking to a husband and a wife who are believers, who are united to the same body in Christ. So while each one is given their own command and they are not conditional on one another, there is also the understanding that the marital relationship is most harmonious when each person is carrying out the scriptural command. A husband will naturally find it easier to show love to a wife who submits to him and a wife will find it easier to submit to a husband who loves her. But one is not absolved of responsibility because of the other's failure to be obedient. So what does this all mean? We must strive to be set apart in our marriages. A biblical marriage will look different and is distinctly at odds with what modern society says marriage should be. In a day and age when society tells us that marriage can be whatever we like, Scripture is very clear that a godly marriage cannot be whatever we like it to be. A godly marriage follows the command of Scripture. Wives, pray for your husbands that God would grant them the wisdom to lead well. Look for ways to help your husband perform his God-given duties. Recognize that your husband is given as a gift to be a provider and protector. Husbands, consider that loving your wife as Christ loves the church, that love wants her salvation, her sanctification, her purification, and ultimately her glorification. That husbands should be concerned not only with their wife's physical and emotional well-being, but ultimately with their spiritual well-being. Pray for her and with her.
husband should read and teach Scripture. That's not to say that wives are unable to read and understand. However, as the head of the family, the husband is the one who will be held to account for his family. So the husband must be careful to teach and lead his family well. Husbands should encourage and exhort their wives. As one under submission, it can be easy to feel unwanted, unworthy, or taken for granted. Husbands should be quick to love and recognize that your wife is a gift from God. The husband should recognize that the wife is not inferior since, as Peter says, they are heirs with you and of the grace of life. Husbands should also be mindful of the authority that they have so as not to abuse it. Since the tendency of, the, the tendency of husbands since the fall is toward anger and subjugation. Husbands should remember that the authority they they have is an extension of God's authority since all authorities from him, as we're told in Romans 13. We are to use that authority for God's ends and as he would have us use it. And we are to use it for his glory alone. And we should recognize, husbands need to recognize and remember, your wife is your helper. While the curse of the fall is that the ground will rebel and that work will become futile, the husband needs to bear in mind that that is not his wife's fault. Because as we are reminded in the the, in Genesis, while the serpent deceived, may have deceived the woman, the man's sin was knowing and willing. And God's judgment is just. The man earned his just reward. Husbands, remember that your wife is a comforter and companion in the face of futility. So by putting on Christ in our marriage, we show the world the gospel that we claim. Our marriages should look different. Our marriages, as those who claim the name of Christ, our marriages should be harmonious. With both ultimately under the submission and the lordship of Christ. And by putting on Christ in our marriage, we also teach our children. As Paul talks about in the next section when he's talking about parents and children. That we bring up our children in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We do that through our example of what a godly marriage should look like. As I said at the beginning, I I 
I teach this to my own shame. I do not do this well. But we have a great God who that in the face of our sin, his grace and mercy are greater. And we have a Savior and a God who is approachable that we can boldly approach the throne of grace. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.